This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am joined by yet another of my bosses here at Rush University, and I'm proud to say the newest member of our department. This is Dr. Christowald, who was operating here with the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush for many years, and just this year, 2023 in January, joined us in the Department of Neurosurgery. Dr. DeWald, a belated welcome to the department, and welcome today to the show. Thank you, JP. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here in neurosurgery, and pleasant to pleasure to be with you in this podcast. So, your transition to join our department, what led to that, and what the process, and now operating uh, in this new space for some months now, is is what I want to focus on with this conversation. But for our listeners that don't know you, let's kind of look backwards and and get to where you are today. So. For those of us, uh, for those listeners who don't know you, who may be, in, we have medical students listening, residents, people in college even, give a little bit of your background and, and your practice to date. Well, first of all, that might take a whole hour to right. drive through all this. <clears throat> so I'll try to speed it up. Um, I've been in practice all oh, 29 years now. I started, uh, I went to University of Illinois for my orthopedic residency right down the street. And then I joined my father in practice. My father has been a founding member of the Scoliosis Research Society, and he was a prominent scoliosis surgeon in Chicago for many years. And he had me early enough that, you know, I was he was 26 when he had me as wow. a child. So it allowed me to end up working with him for 10 years in practice together. So it was very, very nice to do that. But anyway, so in 92 is when I did my, after I finished my orthopedic residency, I did a fellowship half at Rush with my father and half at the Shriners Hospital learning pediatric spinal deformity. And at that time, uh, really, there was only, I hope you can hear the L in the background. I think that'd be, yeah. I think that'd be nice. I think it's, uh, at that time, it was almost all orthopedic surgeons doing spinal deformity and really no neurosurgeons. I mean, there are a few like Ralph Cloward who uh, really wasn't recognized early on as being a a beginning, I think, of, of spinal deformity. But in general, scoliosis work was always done by orthopedic surgeons. Right. And that's kind of what really turned me on to orthopedics to begin with, was seeing what my dad was doing. I even worked in the cast room here at Rush when I was a high school student. Oh, wow. Uh, putting on casts, helping to put casts on, taking them off. And so I was already kind of geared to become an orthopedic surgeon. And I, I really do like fractures, frankly. But I, <laughs> I, I, I just didn't, long bone fractures, there's... But uh, that wasn't my kind of life. I didn't want to be up at you know, 3 in the morning putting yeah. in. Uh, I know that's kind of hard to say that to a neurosurgeon. You guys are up all the time. But uh, at least that's when I was training. That was, you know, trauma was one thing. And uh, elective spine surgery or elective uh, hip replacement was a, was a different way of life. So uh, anyway, so I, I started in 92, 93, did a fellowship. And then I did a away fellowship, an international fellowship, partly sponsored by North American Spine Society, where I spent 10 months in Europe, four months in uh, Germany, four months in France, and two months in England at different spine centers. Uh, my dad's prior partner, Kim, Kim Hammerberg, had done the same thing 10 years prior. So mm. he kind of, my dad always believed in uh, uh, the European way of thinking of, of things and didn't want to just do the same way that other American surgeons had done things. So I thought it was good to get that international exposure and, uh, and uh, at the time, uh, I didn't wasn't 
engaged when I first agreed to do this. And then I was, by the time we ready to go, I was married and already had ah. a second kid on the way. So, um, so I, we brought two babies with us to Europe for those 10 months. And it was also a nice break after your residency and fellowship. Sure. And then I came back and started at the uh, 93, I think it was, or I guess 92, 93, 93, 94 was the International Fellowship. And then in 94, I started here at Rush. So I've been at Rush now 29 years. Initially, we were in our own private practice before Midwest Orthopedics. We were uh, uh, a boutique of spinal deformity. Mm. Uh, my father, Dr. Kim Hammerberg, Steve Barjeko later on, and myself. So it was four of us, and all we did was complex spine surgery. And, uh, and we did a little trauma on the side or a little orthopedic work on the side, but basically we were taking in uh, major complex surgeries and scoliosis. And there wasn't a lot of us in the city doing that, so we got recognized as kind of a specialty group. But as times went along and, uh, you know, fee for service and uh, billing changed and uh, mm -hmm. it became less and less possible to be a, a boutique practice like that on your own. At that time, almost all the practices at Rush were private practices. Yeah. They didn't have, it wasn't university-based like they are now. So over the last 29 years, I've think, see, seen things change a lot. My father retired, Dr. Hamburg retired, and I eventually merged with uh, Midwest Orthopedics because they were going to build a brand-new building, and it seemed to make sense. I couldn't be a boutique on my own. You right. can't really do things on your own, even though... Uh, we were part of a fellowship for years. In fact, my dad had started this fellowship. It was, it was the first spinal fellowship, I believe, in the nation, and certainly the first spinal deformity fellowship Right. back in, uh, I think it was 74 or something like this. So I was like the 50th fellow to go through the program. So it had already been well established when I started in 94. So I learned some very complex uh, uh, treatment programs, and as you know, things have changed dramatically since the uh, early 90s till now. Um, I joined Midwest Orthopedics in 07. They were going to build a brand new building. It seemed to make sense to be part of the whole uh, university orthopedic group. The rest of the orthopedics at Rush were all part of Midwest Orthopedics. I was the only guy, Dr. Hammerberg and myself, the only two who were not part of the... Uh, yeah. The, so it just made sense to join them. We had our own building. We had the uh, an MRI and x-ray and things that we couldn't do on our own. We At that time, there, things were turning into electronic medical records. And, that practices needed to pay for on their yeah. own. They had, a, they had to pay for their own fire drill or, you know, program. And <laughs> so it just became impossible to be a, a private physician, frankly. Yeah. And so to join a bigger group allowed us to do that. Well, well, let me, before we make that transition in the timeline, let me keep you further back in the past for a moment because whenever I get the opportunity to talk to someone who is as established, as specialized, and experienced as you are, I always like to ask if you can remember back to way back before you were this far down the road. And so, 92, because I know you're going to love hearing this. That's the year I was born. So <laughs> that's the year you're finishing. I could have been your father. <laughs> right. Um, so putting yourself way back then into medical school or even earlier, as you said, your dad being your dad and you know, you were in the casting room in high school, you were kind of on this road for a long time. You were on this road from well before medical school and residency. But besides that interest you had in fractures, was there any other career or other life you saw for yourself, even outside of medicine or non-surgical medicine or a different kind of surgery? Was, was there ever any kind of career or, or life vision you had that wasn't this? 
I think this is part. This will be part two of our podcast. <laughs> and I certainly went through a lot of different thoughts, and, and I really liked engineering. I, mm. I, my grandfather was a, was a chemical engineer, and I liked mechanical engineering. But I didn't know if I wanted to do engineering or if I wanted to go to med school. But that's going back to early on in in, in college. And, yeah. and I started out at the University of Illinois, uh, thinking I was going to go dual engineering in med school. And I was just getting B's in all the engineering classes at best, and I wasn't sure that was going to get me in the in the med school. Right. So I decided at the end of my uh, freshman year that uh, I wanted to go to med school, and I was going to focus on that. And there was no need to be at a big university if I wasn't going to do engineering. So I transferred to a little college called Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, that had a uh, uh, um, program with Rush at the time. Uh, the president. Um, at Rush had been an alumni from Knox College, mm. Jim Campbell was his name. And he had started out a program uh, where they would do like three years at undergrad and then you'd do four years of med school. And your senior year at Knox would be as a, as a, as your first year of med school. And, and yeah. was the decision to do medicine a decision to do orthopedic surgery? No. Okay. No, no, I wouldn't say that. I never wanted to be one of those guys who just simply did that because my dad wanted me to, whatever. And certainly I was drawn to it because yeah. I, I saw these things around the, the hospital. Exposure, and, yeah. and And uh, I hesitate to tell you this story, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's the main reason that, that we're here is um, the second, in between freshman, sophomore year in college, I worked at, back, at the cast room again. Yeah. At that time, they were casting body cast for scoliosis. Mm-hmm. So they put it in Harrington Rods. They'd keep the patient flat on a bed for almost two weeks. Sometimes they put them in a circle bed. The circle bed was instead of a striker going, you know, left and right upside down. The mm-hmm. circle bed went over to heads over heels. So they'd be supine, <laughs> and then they roll them back prone, and they and they put the sandwich top on it, and they yeah. would flip it all the way over, so they can look at, at a, read a book if they want, or but then and they would be like that for a, you know a week or two, and then we'd put them in a body cast. In the body cast, they had a specialized body cast table that had a firm strap that you can mm-hmm. they lay on the strap the teenager and then you wrap plaster around them we cut the plaster off and then we make a, a um, uh, uh, either kept them in a cast or we made a plaster uh, or a plastic brace from that mold so I remember just molding this teenage girl and you had a wrap plaster around her which is awkward enough that we're you know you have four guys wrapping plaster around this body and they would my dad had put a mirror on the ceiling so they can see what we're doing. And, right. uh, and this, this girl was uh, tearing, and the nurse kept asking her, are they hurting you? Are you okay? And she finally had said, uh, she whispered to her, she goes, no, I've just never seen myself so straight. And, and that, that really wow. kind of put the hook in me as to how I can change people's lives. And, wow. Uh, you know, tears just, of joy. Tears of joy. She truly looked at herself and always seen herself as crooked and as a deformity. And now saw herself straight, and that I thought yeah, that what power that has. And I've continued throughout my career, been able to change people's lives and really change their deformities. And that's really kind of what made me want to be a deformity surgeon from that. But I still wasn't just going to assume that that was what I was going to do. Yeah. But you asked, and that's that was kind of the hook that brought me to. Sure, I'm. Uh, you know, no one listening, just you and me. <laughs> but was was there any pressure? There was a little pressure. Um, not a lot of pressure, honestly. It okay. was, uh, uh, you know, 
it was there, we had some discussions about grades and you know <laughs> did I think I was really going to get to med school and, and and these kind of pressures yeah. uh, so that was one thing and then once I was in the med school I got little hints like uh, I got a medical student musculoskeletal uh, textbook right. that just as a hint that I could read about you know uh, bony things uh, but he supported me <laughs> he once joked. He goes, I could be any kind of surgeon I wanted to be, you know. It's, yeah. it's, at least he put me in that category. Yeah. But but honestly, if I told him that I wanted to do something else, I, I think he would have supported me. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, Henry Ford. You can have any color you like as long as it's black, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, the, uh, but I, I, honestly, through all med school, I liked almost everything I did. I mean, yeah. I liked cardiology. I liked psychiatry. Just, you know, I found everything very, very interesting. But I just couldn't really see myself and... It was constantly. It was more of a. Uh, would it take the place of, of what I liked about orthopedics? Yeah. And it was constantly. Then there's a lot of pressure, as you know, going to neurosurgery. A lot of pressure with your colleagues. You know who's going for what and mm. how difficult it was or wasn't, and could you, should you do some research? And there's a lot of internal uh, stresses and pressures that you got. And and sometimes I felt pressure being a you know a doctor's son that you know maybe you shouldn't right. do that. You should look at something else and. But I, I, it still, you know, bones interest me. That's all I got to say. Maybe because I've had, we had some bones around the house that we would uh, <laughs> you know, see and hold and play with, if you will. And um, so, but uh, but no no great no great deal of pressure. Interesting. Um, you know, it's almost like the reverse. It was no, I shouldn't say reverse. It was positive reinforcement because every right. time I would make it, you know, a I like this. I really like this case. I really like this and. And I, then my father would give me a lot of praise for yes. that way, you know, and, and less praise for uh, right. if, I, if I put a Foley catheter in. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, I, I still uh, haven't had the pleasure to meet him, but sounds like he's a smart guy, as one might deduce, because as, as our listeners have heard me say uh, a nauseating amount of times, I, I studied a lot of behavioral psychology in college, and the, the one thing that B.F. Skinner and his followers prove time and again is that positive reinforcement is the most effective way to change behavior. Beats punishment, beats reward removal, you name it. So it sounds like he, he knew how to guide you even if he wasn't <laughs> saying so to your face. That's right. I, I guess it's like training a dog is what I've always thought of it. So. <laughs> right. But, uh, and then when I was in orthopedics, it was the same thing. Everything I did, I, I enjoyed. And, uh, but still, everything just kind of flowed towards and the positive reinforcement of how, how happy he was that I was thinking of doing uh, spinal work, and the biggest, uh, you know, question I think in in my career has been: Should I have done a fellowship with my father? Uh, it was kind of strange, but there wasn't a lot of fellowships out at that time. Yeah, and uh, and a lot of them were minimal, in, or I shouldn't say minimally invasive, but they were degenerative fellowships and not deformity fellowships. Right. Um, but the uh, the main reason I ended up, I knew I was going to go to this international fellowship. And right or wrong, I just figured that wherever I went, people would say, well, you know, what would your father do? And I, I'd, I'd have to say, I have no idea. I didn't even train with him yet. <laughs> so I thought I would do one, week, one year with him here, and then yeah. I would go overseas, and I'd have a lot more to offer as to what we did in Chicago. And, and that is indeed what happened. Right. But, but when I got back to Chicago, it was like, you know, why'd you do a fellowship with your dad? But that was, um, that's why. So yeah, That's foresight. So... You covered your transition from the boutique private practice to joining Midwest, and as you described it, the way healthcare writ large was changing at the time, that was a logical decision. 
resources, strength in numbers, change in overall practice patterns within Rush, but also nationwide. Um, looking at the more proximate past, this latest transition you've made from Midwest to the Department of Neurosurgery at Rush, um, maybe take a few steps back, however far back makes logical sense for the story of how this came to be. And when did you start considering that move and, and what kind of led you to it? Well, again, it's pretty complex, but I, I will say that the... It's uh, complex spine. It's, uh, it's very good. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a combination of um, uh, politics and, and, and financial, frankly. Uh, it was clear that um, uh, as I look back, the fellows that we were training and even our own group is becoming more and more minimally invasive as all spine is, even yeah. neurosurgical spine. And a lot of it was going, uh, you know, the push was to, if you're going to hire a spine doctor, uh, orthopedically I'm talking about it in particular, neurosurgery as well, uh, they're mostly looking for those who have minimally invasive training. Mm -hmm. And even though they want to know the, the complex deformity, they frankly weren't going to do that job. Whereas the first 10, 15 years, almost everyone that I had was part of the training, my dad was still there too, ended up doing complex spinal deformity for the most part. Some yeah. didn't. And as I saw over the last 25 years or so, is that more and more uh, had more interest in doing lesser complex surgery when they get out. Just right. the jobs they're applying for. And, and to paint with a broad brush, but writ large, I think part and parcel with that trend, the explosion of ambulatory centers and outpatient spine surgery has also predominantly been driven by orthopedic surgeons who are operating more and more in the ambulatory setting relative to neurosurgical spine surgeons. Absolutely. Part and parcel. No, no, that's it. It took a while for me to really see that yeah. in my own group, but you know, every year we'd have, not every year, but every other year we'd have some changes in the compensation formula. We were still a private, Midwest Orthopedics is one of the last few true private practices at the university, mm -hmm. whereas neurosurgery and, I don't know, uh, a lot of the other general surgery are now part of the university system, and they're more RVU-based. And, yeah. and when you do straight compensation versus uh, RVU based on the complexity, it just didn't make sense uh, from a financial point of view if I wanted to keep doing what I'm doing, as well as it from uh, the small cases that were specialized in the orthopedic ambulatory center, as you're mm -hmm. saying. And I didn't want to see my time at, uh, in practice to be to dwindle away. I still had thought I had a lot of uh, worth and a lot of uh, education that I wanted to, to, to pass on. And so in my own mind, as I started looking across the, uh, a lot of the spinal deformity surgeons in the Scoliosis Research Society, that those who are doing adult spinal surgery, a lot of them are becoming dual-pointed neurosurgery orthopedic surgeons, mm. and they were training university-based type of, of guys doing complex surgery. Frankly, complex surgery doesn't belong in the ASC, obviously. Of course. So, uh, and so I think when you look back at, uh, especially the neurosurgeons who are doing brain surgery, they have to have an in-house in based yeah. type of a system. So I just, I just see a new shift happening that these complex cases are going to be more and more done inpatient and probably done more and more by neurosurgeons or combination neurosurgery orthopedics. Yeah. And I've seen some podcasts recently that start talking about, you know, should we be changing how we train spine surgeons? So they should have a 
combined. And again, getting back to my father, he always believed there should be a, a spinology separate uh, um, specialty. Now the problem is we've talked about uh, the neurosurgeons either do brain or either do spine, and they have to have some knowledge of doing spinal surgery if they're going to be yeah. unit of doing brain surgery. So, so anyway, that was that's it's it's another wave of economic and political changes that I've seen happen in my now 30 years coming up. Well, then now let's get to the fun stuff in this last phase of the conversation. So for our listeners, if you didn't hear it, um, I guess a year or two maybe now ago, I did an interview with Dr. Roger Stoop, who's over at Northwestern. He is one of the world's preeminent neuro-oncologists, and he was recently recruited to the neurosurgery department at Northwestern. And so I, I kind of talked with him about what it's like to be a, a non-neurosurgeon in the department. And so similarly, Dr. DeWald, now that you've been with us for seven, eight months now, what are some of the key differences you've noticed? I mean, obviously there's, there are the obvious differences between the things that we do and the things your former partners do, but from your perspective and your day to day, what are some of the perhaps expected but major differences and then maybe some of the unexpected things that surprised you once you joined us and, and started to see the way we do things? Well, I think the, um, I don't think there's been a lot of surprises, uh, first of all. Mm -hmm. I, it was a very smooth transition, but I think the, from um, a personal point of view, uh, there is a, uh, a desire for the neurosurgery department to have me be able to train their residents, your residents, you, uh, in what I do, which really kind of gives me a boost to my, towards me in my career. You know, I'm 62 now. I, you know, let's call it five years, six years remaining, that all of a sudden I'm, you know, I've kind of, I have a new spark to train new people to do different things, and, and, and that's, that truly has reinvigorated me. So I think that is the main thing I noticed. Uh, the camaraderie among the, uh, the neurosurgeons who do spinal surgery and myself has been fantastic, whereas we had 30 orthopedic guys. Uh, some of the, you know, joint doctors would see what I did, but that's not their focus. And right. But here I'm with, you know, guys who only the main focus is brain or spine. So it seems to be a little bit more of a, a cohesive uh, camaraderie than we had with a broad range of orthopedics. Nothing against them. I mean, I mean, hell, it went from, you know, hand surgery to, uh, you know, total yeah. joints and foot to spine. So, I mean, it's, the cool thing about orthopedics was that, that they could do such a broad range. The nice thing is a spine surgeon, we were kind of an offset of orthopedics, if you will. And here I'm part of the main set. Yeah. yeah. And we, I we do find it funny that the brain guys kind of look down a little bit, I've noticed, on the spine guys. Whereas in orthopedics, you know, the spine guys always thought they were kind of above. That, uh, right. So I, I find that kind of an interesting. It's, that, it's yeah. an old joke. You, you've, you've changed hierarchies now, and yeah. so the, the relative position yeah. of spine. But I, I think in that regard, you're, you are still in a pretty friendly program. We have a, a very special group of uh, spine neurosurgeons at Rush right now, so it's prime time for you to join the lineup. Um, well, it has been a treat having you and, and you know, talking about you teaching the neurosurgery residents and I, I've been working with you, I think, chiefly among our, our residents. And so learning not just the different technical things that you do that our attendings don't do, but you treat entire classes of patients that our attendings don't treat by and large. Um, and you, you frequently go out of your way to show me equipment or techniques that we've never seen before, and that's phenomenal. Um, 
but surely there there has to be there has to be something about our department and our operations that has to i mean i recall a day that we needed an mri rather urgently and we made that happen and you went you could just do that uh, so there, there's got i mean that's hospital specific but um maybe on the administrative side or booking or scheduling or or we could talk about post-operative management well <laughs> these are small little changes right. you know I, <laughs> Uh, I, I will say that for years I was very frustrated and, and disappointed with, with, with Rush when I couldn't get an MRI, and we got it done in an hour. I, I feel like I got to tell my colleagues, that the, my old colleagues in orthopedics, I go, this, this could actually be done quickly. And I'm not sure how that, why we don't have that connection. I don't know if it's some kind of an animosity thing because they're still private or not, not with, not with neurosurgery, but I mean with radiology. Yeah. And other, although radiology has been independent for a long time. Um, and then, uh, like, well, the CAT well, scan is right on the floor. We just yeah. get a CAT scan immediately. It's just, it's, uh, those things are great. The bad thing is I still got to work with radiology to measure x-rays. Hmm. They don't, if we had 30 orthopedic guys complaining to, to university radiology to, to make it happen, I think it would happen. But because it's only a few of us, they don't let us measure x-rays so easily here. So it's been good or bad. Right. Well, I'll tell you the real scans se- are good. Regular yeah. X-ray not so good. So. Yeah, I'll tell you the secret to a speedy MRI is have junior residents that spend two and a half or three years uh, screaming, cajoling, begging, crying, and buying coffee for the MRI technicians. That's that's how you get in the back door. Well, that's good to know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So don't tell everybody on the podcast though. Well, they don't work here. Okay. Uh, that's that's the rush secret. Um, so while we bring this to a close, I want to do a few quick. Rapid fire questions, some fun and some just to pick your brain. What's your favorite inner body? One that works. <laughs> Good I answer. Mean, because there's so many different inner bodies. I get I almost get tired of sales reps who come up and show me one more inner body that's gonna be much better. Well just uh, but the f- fact of the matter is almost everything fuses in the front of the body. Sure. And so What's uh, your favorite one to put in? So technically. Honestly I think I st- I still I like the we use today. We use a titanium-coated peak cage. Yeah, that's probably my favorite one because I like to see the bone develop, and uh, and I still think the peak matches the modulus of elasticity better with the bone. A pure titanium cage would sink too much, and having a little uh, titanium coating allows for a little bit of ingrowth. But uh, and you like posterior approach? Oh no, that's not true. I love well, A-lift. A-lift. I didn't know okay. you were talking. Yeah, about yeah. That. So even even approach. I thought you were just talking about just. The cage itself. Stuff cages in general. Sure. The cage itself, yeah. No, I would say that I like anterior. anterior. If I can avoid moving the nerves out of the way, because, I mean, bone tolerates being beat up. Yeah. But nerves don't. So if you can avoid it. I know in the last two ispic spondies we did it backside. But in general, if I don't think I need to de- see that nerve root, I'm going to do an A-lift. And I also I think that A-lifts at 4, 5, and 5, 1 are very important to get better lordosis. And a lot of guys say you can get just as much from a T-lift or from a PLIF. I don't think so. I think you can get a much better uh, uh, four, five, five, one lordosis if you, do, if you can do it anteriorly. Okay. Hooks or screws? Oh, screws. Screws in general, but at the top of a construct, I think that if you, all you learn how to do is put in hooks, excuse me, screws, and you got a problem with very small pedicles or some reason you can't do it, you still need to know hooks, but in general, screws are make your life much easier. Okay, 
Adults or pediatrics? Which one do I like better? Mm-hmm. Pediatrics. Why? Well, not adolescent pediatrics. I okay. don't see the real young ones. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys nowadays are doing, you know, uh, one and two-year-olds are that have chest abnormalities and are using distracts of, uh, to try to open up their chest and let them. Those kids are pretty sick. So I usually don't see those. But I, the kids in general, the adolescents, because they heal so much better. And getting back to that girl, I remember from when, when I first saw it, you, you literally could take an 80-degree curve and make it almost straight. And now you've changed, you know, potentially the rest of your life. And that's a, and adults complain a lot more. <laughs> that's right. They have higher risk of infections and other issues. So I, adolescents are the best. And you just visually, visually see the change as you do the case. So you start out, you got this big curve, the x-ray shows this big curve, and when you're done, it's straight. And adults are just trying to balance and try to take care of their pain. So it's a little bit different. Okay. Adults are more work, too. Do you have a favorite procedure? So if you, you look at your calendar, you see next week, oh, I'm doing a 4-5 T-lift. I'm doing a 10 to pelvis fresh spine. I'm doing a one-level lateral. Do you have a, what, if, if there's a given procedure, whatever the level, but do you have a favorite procedure? Uh, posterior adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. That, okay. For all the reasons stated. Right. Okay, and I guess to try to bring it full circle, it's a, a cliche, but cliches exist for a reason. If you went back and did it all again, couldn't be an orthopedic surgeon. Knowing what you know now about medicine, where the field of medicine has gone, how technologies have, have evolved, et cetera, what else would you want to be doing these days if you couldn't have been an orthopedic surgeon? Well, uh, certainly I'm with a, a neurosurgical <laughs> podcast, so I, I would say neurosurgeon, but I didn't do neurosurgery. Uh, you know, I, I viewed it as only brain work. Yeah. And, and certainly, but let's take that out of the, the yeah. picture. Uh, I, I probably would say cardiology. Hmm. Uh, I think cardiology... Uh, Interventional or medical inter cardiology? Interventional cardiology. Okay. I think that has been, you know, they talk about how much cardiothoracic surgeons have kind of disappeared and yeah. at least decreased because of the... And I'm amazed at what they could do with interventional cardiology. I mean, at, at one time, you know, just, again, not that I want to sound that old, but, you know, they weren't doing any the stents when I first started. It was, it was definitely a crack in the chest, and they were yeah. doing vessel bypass, and it was a... It was a morbid procedure. And those people would, you know, take months to a year to fully recover. And now, you know, I've had a stent myself, and, you know, I thank God I didn't have to have my sternum cut. And, yeah. and I got a blood supply to my, my, my heart now, and I didn't have before. And I just think that's, that's fascinating what's, what's going on. And, you know, people say, do you think the same thing's going to happen with minimally invasive with spine? And I think in some cases, yes. But, again, I think with the more complex cases there's still going to be a role for open big cases only problem with interventional cards you'd have to wear lead that is a problem, that is a problem. <laughs> they'd get but you that's, there that's between you and i yes uh, but I, I like to stand behind the, the x-ray tech so i don't have to wear lead all day i, I do think that's a problem you know I, I wish there was something we can do about that i bet you look at the number of people with bad backs in the spine world is probably yeah. pretty high wearing that lead all day long Somewhere out there, there's a rep who will, uh, one day will try to sell you an ultrasound that's strong enough to replace the C-arm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, they've already tried, so it's, <laughs> it's got to get better. But, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the best thing about our, our field in general, in, in American medicine, frankly, is, I mean, we do lead the way with innovation and, and, 
as much as we can complain about the expense of, of medicine, we leave the world with innovation to where we're going to go with these ideas. And I, unfortunately, it does take uh, you know some monetary aspect to that to, to make that go. Yeah. Well, um, I need to respect your time. That was a tour de force uh, walk through your life, career to date, and then all the recent changes. I really appreciate you sharing that with me and our listeners. We'll have to have you back on. Maybe we can get your dad and talk about establishing the fellowship, what it was like uh, seeing you come up behind him in the field and everything. That would be a lot of fun. But for today... I think he'd like that. You know, he's... uh... (laughs) He's got some macular degeneration, so he'd love this because he wouldn't have to look at anything. Exactly. He can just talk. I love it, GP. That's awesome. Perfect. Uh, But for today, uh, thank you so much on behalf of myself and the listeners for joining us on the podcast. This has been a joy. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.